You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Welcome to Grace Community Church. <clears throat> Thank you for being here this morning. It's great to be here in the house of the Lord, worshiping together. And it's great to see the youth who are going to Chattanooga. I, 50 years ago, I went to Chattanooga. Let's just say it was not the number one destination spot in the country at the time. But I do feel a, <clears throat> a kinship with the youth because... They will be seeing some of the same sorts of places that I saw all the time when I was there 50 years ago. Also feel a kinship with them because Allison and I are taking a trip tomorrow to Switzerland and France. So um, we're uh, heading out. Of course, who knows if we'll get there or not. You know how it is going these days. Well, look, it's, it's good to, to gather together, to laugh together, to worship together. Christians were designed to live in community. You ever heard that before? Many times you have heard that. Our common life as believers and followers of Jesus Christ was assumed in the first century when the Apostle Paul and other apostles wrote these letters to the New Testament, we are blessed beneficiaries of those letters that were written, which are now the New Testament. <clears throat> to, in our day today, a personal relationship with the Lord is assumed among Christians. Those who are believers have a personal relationship with the Lord. Sometimes... Especially if you've had a bad experience in church, <clears throat> some would think, well, I should never allow a church to get in the way of my personal relationship with the, with the Lord. But if someone had said in the first century, well, me and God are okay, but I'm just, I'm, I'm just not into church politics and all that goes on inside of churches, so I just worship the Lord on my own, the response would have been, oh, that's not possible. The tenor of the New Testament and the clear understanding of the early believers was to be apart from the church is to be apart from Christ. That's why church discipline was such a big deal, which we'll be referencing soon enough when we get to 1 Corinthians 5. There are multiple metaphors in the New Testament to describe the church. It's like a field we learned last week at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 3. It's like a building. It's like a temple. The church is like a temple, in fact, we will learn this morning. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll also see in Ephesians 2. It's like a wife to a husband, we learn in Ephesians 5. And Revelation 19, it's like a body we learn, uh, we're going to learn uh, a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 12 and also in Ephesians 4. It is like a young woman or a young man sitting by the lake free from the hurts and disappointments of church politics. We see absolutely nowhere in the New Testament. God cares deeply about his dwelling place 
the temple of God. Aha, you would say, as I said many years until I understood better. Aha, it is my body that is the temple of the Lord. And when we say that, we are affirming the truth in 1 Corinthians 6, where believers are warned against sins. And it used to be smoking, drinking, you know, cussing and chewing and all those kind of things. But it, it's truly uh, dealing mostly with sexual immorality. But any sin that does great damage to the temple of the Holy Spirit that is a believer's body is addressed very specifically in, in, in 1 Corinthians 5. This morning in 1 Corinthians 3, we will read about the grave responsibility with which leaders are tasked to protect the integrity of the gospel. We'll also learn about the danger to those who damage the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is the temple that is the church, not the temple that is the body of the individual believer. Now, if you're not sure about that, the Greek is where we find what exactly Paul is talking about. We're going to read the text in just a moment. But if the Greek were translated into Southernese, as we need it to be translated sometimes, we would read, read this. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? In other words, the second person pronoun is plural. Not just you, the individual, but all of you. The collective you. The community. The church. Even without knowing the grammar of the original language, the context of chapters 1 through 4 lead us to an understanding of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3. But when we have been so conditioned to think in other ways, it's hard to get our minds around what is being said. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 23, and then I'm going to explain the text as best I can. And then we'll glean application, which will lead us to this table, to the Lord's Supper. Before we read, though, remember that this text is in the larger context of the gospel, which at its core is we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 23. Would you please stand for the reading of scripture? I will be reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> the first part of this text is going to be quite familiar to some of you. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder. We've got a few skilled master builders in our church. Paul is saying, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward." 
If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know? Do y'all not know? Is where he's saying this. That you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy and you are that temple. (laughs) Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You remember this from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. How the wisdom of this world passing away, it's, it means nothing to God. It's the wisdom of God that seems foolishness to the world. <clears throat> Let him become a fool in the eyes of others, essentially is what he's saying. That he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again... The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ. And Christ is God's. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Early in my Christian life, so somewhere around 50 years ago, I I heard the passage that we have just read refers to the judgment seat of Christ. And there's a distinction in Scripture between the judgment seat of Christ and uh, the great white throne judgment, which is found in Revelation chapter 20. At the judgment seat of Christ, we are judged on the basis of our works and those who stand before the great white throne judgment, though, are uh, judged on the basis of their lack of faith. So, in my, my, with my understanding of that and my vivid imagination, here is the way I understood 1 Corinthians 3. When I stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, the works that I have done over the years are going to stand beside me. Then the eyes of Jesus, said to be in Revelation 19, like fire, are going to look on my works. I've been building a house all the time that I'm here. And it's going to reveal what kind of works I have used or what kind of materials that I have used to build this house. Gold, silver, precious stone is going to withstand the fire of Christ. Wood, hay, stubble, of course, is going to be burned up. Now look, there are lots of good reasons for such an interpretation. There is talk of accountability, testing, judgment, rewards, or the lack thereof. But reading this text in context leads us to a different Interpretation. I, I, I've never studied 1 Corinthians in the detail that I'm now required to pursue, but I remember every year, I, almost every year, I read through Scripture. And one year, eight to ten years ago, I was reading and I'm like, wait a minute. This 
is not about personal judgment. This is about how the church protects and, and, and proclaims the gospel. Are we proclaiming the pure gospel? That's what this is about. Imagine how alarmed I have been in my studies this go round to realize that this judgment is not for the church as a whole, but it's for church leaders. Church members have already been addressed for ways in which they cluster around the personalities of church leaders so that they can exalt themselves above others. But now, the way in which church leaders protect the integrity of the gospel is front and center for the judgment described in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. The whole church is going to be brought back into focus in verses 16 to 17. Now, Look, I, I feel like I want to say this every time. I don't feel like Grace Community Church has made a lot of the same mistakes that Corinth Church made to where people need to be lined up. When I was a kid going to the state fair one time, I remember it vividly. And uh, we went through a, 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 a little neighborhood and there was a lady sitting on a, a chair and there were like five kids lined up and the first one was getting a whipping and they were all just waiting their turn you know sometimes it feels like that's what first corinthians is and i don't but how easy it is for us to make the mistake that is made in first corinthians Paul begins this section in verse 10 by saying that as a skilled master builder, he has laid the only foundation that will support the church, the true church, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, it's a, we look at some of the ways things were written in the first century, and if we think about them the way that we hear and speak these words today, you might think that Paul is bragging, but anything but. He's saying, look, Yes, God enabled me to pro proclaim the gospel, but I'm telling you the foundation is Jesus Christ and nothing else stands up to the test. Anyone who tries to build a church on any other message is not building a church at all, regardless of what it's called. Verse 12 refers to two categories of building materials, those that are precious and those that are common. Gold will melt, of course. You know, so this house that I'm building, if the fire hits it, the gold is gonna it's gonna melt. It's gonna be a puddle if it's as it is on earth here. But remember, Paul was speaking of the temple of God, the church. And as Solomon's temple was filled with gold, silver, and precious stones, so should the church leaders proceed with equal care and give great attention to detail in building the church. If the leaders are faithful in proclaiming the gospel, they will be rewarded. If they become distracted by secondary and tertiary issues, they will receive no reward, but rather will regret their loss of focus when their efforts are revealed to have been worthless. 
leaders go astray by allowing the church to be personality driven and causing the church to look more like a debate club than a refuge for sinners. <laughs> leaders who care more about pleasing the culture of the world around them than they care about pleasing the Lord are destined to see their efforts go up in smoke. We must accept the reality that following and serving the Lord in a gospel-preaching church will look like foolishness to the world. If a church makes the gospel its primary focus, well then, as far as the world is concerned, that church is missing the mark. But we're not accountable to the world. We are accountable to Jesus. It's up to the leaders to make a compelling case to the congregation that nothing less than eternity is at stake in how we protect the gospel. And you can see why being focused so much on what's happening right now gets in the way sometimes of eternity. Leaders who fail to lead in the proper way, must answer to the Lord to a greater degree than the congregation. It's why James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, wrote in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Look, if, the, if we have an over-realized eschatology, if we think that everything that really matters is happening right now, in other words, if our focus on eternity is our focus on the present, then a lot of things that the scripture says about submission and commitment and focus, those lines get easily blurred. Do you believe that the, that the leaders and those who teach will have to give a greater account than others? Do you believe, wives, that your husband will have to give it a greater account as the leader of the home than you do? Do you believe, children, that your parents will have to give a greater account than you do? Everything in the New Testament seems to indicate it will. Those who have much responsibility, or much authority, excuse me, have much responsibility. Even if we don't take leadership positions in the church all that seriously the Lord does we do well to take God at his word and to care more about what he thinks than what the world thinks lest you think that only the leaders are accountable to God for the condition of the church let's read these two sobering verses 16 and 17 in which we're all brought back for evaluation <clears throat> do you church not know that all of you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Maybe more in 1 Corinthians than anywhere else. When we get to chapter 11, he's going to say some of you are sick and some have already died. Because of your discipline. Maybe here more than anywhere else do we see 
how serious it is. Our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with the church. And there's not much of that spirit in the world, that understanding in the world today. For God's temple is holy. And all of you make up that temple. Here is the skinny on these verses. It's a dangerous thing to stir up dissension in a gospel preaching church. This could come from the leaders, from the staff, from the congregation. The problem with divisions in the church is that people who are leading the conflict most often feel they have God on their side. And self-righteousness can cause a great deal of harm for a lot of people. You've never been in a church like that, I don't suppose, where two sides were opposed to each other and they were both sure that they had God on their side. Can I just say this? If you are compelled to be critical of a gospel preaching church, make sure you have solid gospel reasons. It is not by any means meant to say that the leaders are beyond accountability. We absolutely are accountable, not only to God, but to you as well. But to stir up dissension in a gospel preaching church is a serious thing. If you leave, better to leave a church than to create conflict. But if you leave, have gospel reasons rather than leave over personal frustrations that God might have built into the church's DNA to help people who would not normally get along serve in unity as a testimony to the one body of Christ that the Spirit has led us to be. That is one whopping long sentence right there. You ever thought about that? Yesterday, uh, David Parker and Steph Graff, not not Steffi Graff. I have baptized athletes, musicians. Steffi, Steph, who? Creed. Were married. And Ricky... Uh, that threw me off, so I don't remember what I was going to say. It was brilliant. You know that. Uh, I'll come back to it. Uh, oh, Ricky said, marriage is not only designed to make you happy. It's designed to make you holy. Now, some of you have heard that. A lot of you haven't. One of the ways we are sanctified in marriage is that our differences sandpaper the rough edges off. We become more like the Lord or we become more like the devil, you know, one of the two. But the same thing is true in church. Look at the disciples. I mean, Jesus chose a tax collector and a person that wanted to overthrow Rome. Tax collectors were the biggest traitors in the Jews' minds ever because they worked for Rome taking advantage of Jews. So, Matthew, come follow me. Simon the Zealot, you who want to destroy Rome, you want to kill their officers and overthrow Rome, you come follow me, and yes, you guys are going to get along together. Sometimes God puts us together, and we don't always see eye to eye, but he's doing it as a testimony. In a recent First Things email, Carter Skeel mused this, quote, We live in a society where the commitments of friendship and community 
are profoundly countercultural. How crazy is that? But it is true. The most individualistic nation in the history of mankind, we are. We live in a society where the commitments of friendship and community are profoundly countercultural, even though these commitments form the basis for happiness and true flourishing. Is this the reason it is increasingly difficult to find stable believers in stable churches? In life, we just move on to the next thing. I mean, there are certainly times to change jobs, join new clubs. There are times to change churches. But God designed us to live and function in community. What makes it even more difficult in our day is that so many young are even willing to walk away from their families. We're just not... We're just not committed to each other like we used to be. God expects us to work at this community. In the closing verses of chapter 3, we're reminded that these words are in the context of a contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. It's why we cannot blindly follow individuals who are nothing more than the servants of the Lord. It's why the great issues of life and death and all matters in the world, whether present or future, must be yielded to the wisdom of God. And I, you know, you have to understand as I'm preparing these messages in the first three, and Ricky Lee will be preaching next week from chapter four. That I feel like, it feels like we've said this. How many times do we need to hear it? We find our marching orders, our instructions in the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God always points us to the foolishness of the cross. Where the son died according to the scriptures so that we might have eternal life. In the end, you belong to Jesus, Jesus belongs to God, and God controls the future. Amen. So three important tasks for our church family that we derive from the truth of our text. Beginning with, one, pray diligently for our church leaders. I trust trust that you already pray for our church leaders. It's a long list. But pray as the Lord enables you, allows you, reminds you to pray for our elders and deacons and staff and home group leaders and missionaries and ministry leaders and ministry team members here at Grace. Just to begin the list, so many of you are in leadership positions. So we need to pray for one another in these ways. Trouble can arise from any sector, and as we have seen in our text today, if the elders especially are not diligent, we will soon be in decline as a church and lose our place of effectiveness just like most of the seven churches addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. 
Pray that Jesus Christ and him crucified will be the primary focus at grace long after all of us to the very youngest of us in this room have gone to be with the Lord should he tarry that long. I hope he'll come back between the first and second service today. But should he tarry, may this be a gospel preaching refuge for the family of God and for the world. It's not going to happen without intention and effort, and surely it will not happen unless Jesus Christ is both the foundation and the leader of our church, the church that he calls Grace Community Church. Second, Delight in the unity that God has given us in Christ and work to protect our body from harm. The problems at Corinth church were significant. So the Apostle Paul came down on those members pretty hard. There are plenty of places in the New Testament where the call to unity around the gospel is much more positive in tone. Look, I would encourage you to read Ephesians 4, the first half of Ephesians 4, this afternoon or sometime early in the week, just to get a different feel for this beautiful one body, one gospel, one faith that the Lord has given us. So let's stay positive as we are reminded of the beautiful unity that is ours in Christ. We take a lot of things for granted, but if you'd been in the first century, it would have been a big deal that Jews, Gentiles, men, women, sophisticated, salt of the earth, employers, employees, even slave and free were one. And Jesus, I've often wondered, wouldn't it be interesting if a slave ended up being an elder of a church and had spiritual authority in a, in a sense over his master. The kingdom life is totally upside down from the world. Each of us has the responsibility to protect the unity that has been given us as a supreme blessing in the same way that the, the only foundation for the church is Jesus, our only hope for unity is also Jesus. We might or we might not like the personalities around us and their ways, other people's ways. But that gives us no excuse for stirring up strife. In our day, you simply move away when people that you don't like, do something or say something that really aggravates you. Just say, eh, whatever. I'm on to something else. And, but the church is not built that way. We're called to work at loving one another in Christ. We don't think about this very often. Forgive one another, forbear with one another, being patient with one another, 
overlooking personality differences, deferring to others' opinions, recognizing the efforts of those whose contributions are rarely seen, or being content with your own contributions, whether they are publicly or, or, not, or acknowledged or not, or even privately acknowledged. Nothing to this life in the church, right? Look, let's face it. God has given us unusual unity here at Grace. A lot of people come in and say, I've never seen a church quite like this. And I say, it wasn't always this way. It was hard won. The only thing that I can think of that would challenge our spirit of unity now, though, is a spirit of debate or complaining or unrepentant sin that is not addressed, or self-righteousness, or a spirit of competition over ministries and spiritual gifts, or taking our privilege to dine at the Lord's table for granted, or in any way allowing the gospel to be overshadowed by anything else. If we are unified about the wrong things, we're still at odds with the Lord. That's the problem with some churches. They're too unified about the wrong things. We're still at odds with the Lord if that's the case. While it is true that as the leadership goes, so goes the church. It is also true that every member of the church has the responsibility to protect the church from harm. The best way to fulfill our calling is to delight in the unity that is ours in Christ. And to understand this last point. We are to move away from the wisdom of the world, hard to do, and lean into God's gracious and sovereign love for his people. Over and over and over again, a distinction is made in the word between God and his people, especially in the book of 1 Corinthians, when we get to church discipline, he's going to say, discipline those who, who wear the name, bear the name of Christ. As far as the world is concerned, you'd have to go out of the world if you were going to be separate. You, don't worry about the world. You worry about, you worry about the church. The last few verses of this text might be hard to understand. But essentially, Paul is saying that God is sovereign over all matters, including life Death and the future. You might be tempted to think that those are big categories. And you might be right if you think that. One more time, verses 21 to 23. So, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours (laughs) and you are Christ. And Christ is God's. It's just a sophisticated and frankly rather complicated way of saying you got a choice. Wisdom of God. Wisdom of the world. What's it going to be? If you follow the wisdom of the world, you may be thrilled for a little time, period of time, but at some point, you're going to find how foolish it was 
to not trust the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. Not trust the foolishness of the gospel. When our heart, hearts are focused on the Lord and our hope is in Him, then <laughs> all things are ours. All things, whether it pertains anywhere in the world, life, death, present, future. We belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to the Father. So as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, would you please bow your heads and open your hearts to the Lord? I will call the elders and deacons up in a moment, but right now, would you just please bow your heads and open your hearts to the Lord? So what is it that is troubling you now? I, I, I doubt you're having to search your mind to say, is there anything? There's something in this life, the present, the future, in the world, it's troubling us. Is it something with your job, <clears throat> your spouse? Your parents, your children, something at work, in your neighborhood, in the stock market, something at church. Paul says that all things are yours in Christ, and Christ is God's. In other words, all things are under the Lord's Control And just as Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of his Father, we are called to trust our Lord with the help of the Holy Spirit and to obey even as Jesus did. You belong to Jesus. Rest in his love for you. Just let it go right now. He loves you. Trust in Him. And ask the Lord to prepare your heart for the table, which we will approach in just a moment. If there is sin in your life, this is the time to confess it. We are called to allow the Lord to examine our hearts. And if there is sin that needs to be confessed in your heart, quietly, not audibly at all, before the Lord, confess your sins. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you against our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have done what ought not to have been done and we have left undone that which should have been done. Thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. Father, prepare our hearts to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. 
in which we commune with you and with one another as we remember the body of Christ that was given on our behalf and the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. So as we approach this table designed to bring us into unity with Christ and with one another, we come with grateful hearts for the forgiveness of sin that was bought, purchased, at Calvary. And we commit our lives anew to you and to one another. Amen. As the elders and deacons come forward and the worship team comes to prepare, all coming to help lead us at the table, I'll I'll give a few instructions. First, I'll let you know that the bread is gluten-free, so if you have allergies, wheat allergies, you'll appreciate that. Second, we'll be serving from the front this morning, so you will go to the section that is in front of you. Ushers will allow you to know or let you know when it's your turn to come forward. You'll come forward in the interior aisles and then you'll go back up either the center aisle or the outer aisles. This meal is intended for believers. So if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, then please join us in this meal. And by the way, just to say, when you receive the elements, please Take them back to your seat and we will partake uh, together. If you have not trusted Jesus as your, as your Savior, if you're hoping somehow your works have been good enough or your church attendance or your giving or your helping others is good enough to make you qualified for heaven, then please know that it's only the blood of Christ and only in saying, Oh God, I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness of my sins because I believe that Jesus died for me. If you've never done that before, perhaps you make your confession this day by partaking of this meal with us. Otherwise, we would invite you to just be here with us as we partake in this meal. Our text this morning is from Mark 14, verses 22 to 25. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said to them, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.